invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we prepare to come in a few minutes to the Lord's table. One of the aspects of the church which ties together, uh, ties us together with our past is the Lord's Supper. Some call it communion, some call it the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. Uh, that term reminds us that when we eat the bread and drink of the cup, we share together in the benefits and the significance of Christ's death. Some churches call it the Eucharist, which is a word which means thanksgiving, for we are also giving thanks as we partake for the life and death of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 is the definitive text on the Lord's Supper. If you are ever asked, well, where do I turn in the Bible to learn about the Lord's Supper? Uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Just as 1 Corinthians 13 is the definitive chapter on love, so we come here to learn about the Lord's Supper. I'll begin reading in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, hear God's holy word. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, and my blood do this Whenever you drink of it, drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you come together, meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Let's pray together. Oh God, this uh, sacrament that you've ordained, we pray for better understanding, self-examination, and the opening of your word. In Christ's name, amen. As I said, this is the definitive text in the New Testament about the Lord's Supper. Let me just very briefly tell you what it covers. We began reading in verse 17, and for the next five or six verses, it begins with a rebuke. It's pretty bad. The term come together means to assemble an official gathering of the body of believers. When he starts off and he says, your meetings do more harm than good, it's a pretty strong rebuke, saying y'all are worse off when you gather and assemble for worship than if you were not meeting at all. How come? Well, they were, there were divisions. They were divided up. And this would really show forth the divisions because they would attach the Lord's Supper to the end of a meal together. 
And instead of sharing with one another, some would go ahead and just sit down and begin eating, not even waiting. Some would bring their own food and not share it with others. So if you walked in with your steak that you brought from home and someone else had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, well, they could eat that, you'd eat yours, and if somebody didn't bring anything, well, they didn't have anything to eat. And lo and behold, some of the people were drinking too much wine and getting drunk. That's a problem passage for those of you who think that all wine in the New Testament was non-alcoholic. But that's not the subject for today. So he begins with this rebuke. It's, it's a bad situation. Then he gives instruction in verses 23 through 26. And he recalls the original institution of the supper. And he says, For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Paul wasn't there on the night Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. This was obviously revelation that Christ gave to Paul later, since he was not even converted at the time when Jesus instituted the Last Supper. But he says that his instruction that he's giving now is authoritative because it came from the Lord. And then in verses 27 through the end of the chapter, he gives more instructions on how to get it right. And he talks a lot about judgment and not eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. So before we come to the Lord's table, I'd like to make just a a number of observations from this scripture and others about it. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. In a sense, it's an anniversary meal. Now, a covenant in ancient days was a binding contractual agreement, to put it lightly. It was really much stronger and more binding than a contract like we have today. It was a solemn promise, and it would be confirmed by an oath or a sign. And then the sovereign who was making the covenant would give a sign and a seal which initiated the relationship. And then there would also be another sign that was to be observed periodically to renew the covenant. And this sign was usually a covenant meal. In the Old Testament, the covenant meal between God's people and God himself was the Passover meal. Every year, God's people, the Jews, would sit down and they would recite what their covenant-keeping God had done in the past year and the blessings he had bestowed and how he had kept his covenant and he was faithful and what he had called them to do and they would consecrate themselves, dedicate themselves again to that relationship with their covenant-keeping God. Now, there were two signs in the Old Testament. There was circumcision and there was Passover. They both anticipated what would happen later, the coming of a Messiah. So they looked to the future, both circumcision and Passover. Now, we no longer circumcise as a sign of the covenant of grace because Jesus, the Bible says, is our circumcision. He has circumcised our hearts. He's done that by his Holy Spirit. He's given us new hearts and a new spirit. We also do not observe Passover any longer because it was fulfilled in Christ. And he instituted the Lord's Supper in its place. So now the two signs that we have, baptism and the Lord's Supper, look back. Whereas the other two anticipated what would happen, we look back to what has happened. He replaced circumcision with baptism. And that is now the sacrament of initiation. It is to be observed once. The other sacrament that replaced Passover is the Lord's Supper. It's a time of rededication. Don't you and I need periodically to rededicate ourselves to Christ? Don't you find that your relationship with Him, if you're trusting in Him as your Savior, doesn't it 
wax and wane? Doesn't it go up and down? And some weeks you feel very close to God and near Him and committed to Him, and other weeks may go by and you may feel that, that your heart is cold toward the Lord. We need, we need rededication. We need recommitment. And this is what God has provided for us to bring that about. There's two other observations, and that is it says when you come together, therefore we don't think that this is a private sacrament that we are to administer just at home with our families or something like that. And we're to be refreshed through it or the results will be the worse. He says we can eat and drink judgment on ourselves. So there's no neutral ground in relationship to the Lord's Supper. All of us that come in here today as we come to the Supper, you have to make a decision. You have to decide, am I a believer or am I not a believer? Am I in a right relationship with God or am I not in a right relationship with God? So the sacrament brings us to that point. Some other observations. It's a time of celebration. We come to the Lord's table, yes, with reverence. There should be a serious and sober attitude that we are reflecting on the agony of death because of our sin. And so there should be reverence. But there should also be joined with that reverence a celebration, for we celebrate the gospel here today. And we celebrate the Lord's Supper, commemorating his death. Until when? Speak to me. Until when? Until he comes again. So this also looks ahead. It looks back, but it anticipates now his second coming when he will return. We don't celebrate religion or First Presbyterian Church or organizations. We're not here to celebrate programs. We are celebrating that in Christ there's redemption. That the payment for our sin is full in him. It's a full atonement. There's nothing, not one thing that you and I can do or should do or will do to add to his work. It's a final atonement. It's finished. We don't add anything to it. God is finished with the work of redemption. And it's free. None of us merit it. You can't do anything to make it happen. It's freely given. He saw no merit in us. He saw no potential. He saw, as the Bible says, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were helpless. And so I want you to know so much that free grace of God. If you're not a believer, my prayer would be that you would leave here today trusting in Christ as your Savior. It's also a time of strengthening, not only a time of celebration, but of strengthening. John Calvin in his writings, he said that the purpose of the two sacraments, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they serve like pillars on a building. When you see a, a building and architecture and it's got the strong columns in the front, and he put it this way. He said the building sits on a foundation, but then you add pillars on that foundation to give more strength to the building. Our faith, he says, rests on the Word of God. That's the foundation. But the sacraments are added to strengthen us and settle us on that foundation. And so the sacraments, we don't put our trust in these. This is not the foundation of our faith, but they strengthen our faith. As I partake, as you partake in faith, then he strengthens me as there's this almost like a personal conversation with him. And I'm made stronger in him even though my foundation is on the word of God and on the work of Christ. It's also a time of rededication. If we've been redeemed and celebrate the gospel, we are to consecrate, consecrate ourselves to Christ and dedicate ourselves to him. Anniversaries here celebrate marriages. And hopefully, if you're married, you have 
anniversary celebrations, and you look back and you recommit yourself to your vows. I was reading this week where in Mexico City, maybe you've seen this, that they are now, it's been proposed that they change marriage laws to where you re-up after two years. The marriage, the marriage would, if you don't re-up, it expires after two years. And they think this is going to help the divorce rate that's been going up so high. Well, marriage in this life is to be permanent, but many things can separate us. Illness, death, distance. Our relationship with God, though, is eternal. It's eternal. And we're told in the scriptures, even death cannot separate us from him. Nothing, nothing can separate us from him. And so this, this anniversary meal, if you will, is a time to rededicate ourselves. We rededicate ourselves to worship and to loving God. We rededicate ourselves to loving others and encouraging others. That we're not just living off others as parasites, but we are encouraging other people. Could anyone today, and since it's proper that this be with self-examination, examine yourself, could anyone today say, thank you, God has used you in my life over the past month to help me walk with the Lord stronger. We're to cheer one another on. We're to encourage them. Are you helping other people to finish the race? It's a time also of self-evaluation as we come to the Lord's table. In the last verses, 29 through 34, the word judgment is used five times. And we typically don't think of the Lord's Supper with the word judgment. But it's a visual aid because in the Lord's Supper, it's a demonstration of the wrath of God poured out to punish sin and the forgiveness through the cross of Christ. And so it mirrors Jesus' death and says we're justified by his blood. But we are exhorted here not to partake in an unworthy manner. An unworthy manner. Now, last year I had two people mention to me that when they heard the word unworthy as the pastor, one was me, one was another pastor, in preparing and instructing people about the Lord's Supper, the person said, I've never been worthy. And when I heard that, I thought, what? I'm not worthy to partake. I'm grateful at least they talked to me about it where I could say, that's not what was intended and you, you misunderstood because neither I nor the other pastor in our denomination means that we in any way are worthy in and of ourselves to come to the Lord's table. I said we are using a word from 1 Corinthians 11 that says we're not to partake in an unworthy manner. I said none of us are worthy, but we're to not, we are not to partake in an unworthy manner. Well, what would that be? It says here, some very sober words at the, at the end of the passage in verses um, 28 and following that we're to examine ourselves. And he says the reality of judgment. This is why many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen asleep. That means they've died. Now, in the church at Corinth, there were people that if we could have transported back there into the first century and been at that one of those gatherings... We would have been told, well, you know, Simon over there, he, he's been sick the past month. And, and th this person's very, very weak, very weak. And, and we've, had, we've had a number of people die. And Paul, 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, he associates it with not being taking the Lord's Supper. He associates it with taking it in an unworthy manner. Now, I just want to ask you a question, because only, only the Lord would know the answer for all this. And I've written it out. I, I want my thoughts to be clear. Could it be that the way God has judged us is not so much with physical illness or taking people home prematurely, but that we are in a weak spiritual state? Could it be that our inability, if it's true in your life or mine, our inability to go very far into God's Word with insight and knowledge and with His power is perhaps because of years of our partaking of the Lord's Supper and drinking judgment upon ourselves? I think when he says weak, he doesn't only necessarily mean physically weak, maybe spiritually weak. We would have to ask ourselves that. And he says the purpose of that judgment is restorative and remedial. There's an internal chastening where the Holy Spirit takes his word. And nobody else knows that that's happening but you. And he begins to deal with you. And he disciplines us, maybe even as we prepare for the table. And he says, you know this area? You've got to deal with it. And you say, thank you God for loving me and pointing that out in my life. Now that is you judging yourself. That is internal chastening. There's external chastening. When we are disciplined from outside. Some are weak. Some are sick, he said. Jonah ran from God and God chastened him with a fish. Then there's terminal chastening. A number of you have fallen asleep. To be terminally chastened in the Bible by the Lord is to have your life taken away. Now, I don't think we in this life are ever in a position to make that call and to ever say, yeah, that's what happened. Well, how do we prevent this? He says if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. So now we're back at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. How do we judge ourselves? When I come to the Lord's table, I must commit myself to healthy self-examination. I, I say healthy, I don't mean that we beat ourselves up and just dig around in our lives looking for everything that's, that's sinful and wrong. But there's a proper self-examination. Some of these questions came from John Wesley, same, some came from the Puritans. I gathered them from a number of places. First, we should examine, you should examine your relationship with God. As you prepare to come to the Lord's table... I think there are questions like, do I realize the meaning of these elements? Am I partaking of them by faith? Is Christ truly my only hope of acceptance with God? Is my relationship with God healthy? Do I have other gods in my life? Are my affections toward him waning? Is my heart cold? Am I pursuing holiness? Am I resisting temptation and putting sin to death? Am I growing in the means of grace? Am I confessing my sins regularly? Am I seeking to present every single aspect of my being as a living sacrifice to God? I'm just skimming the surface. Here are some questions for self-examination for relationships with others. And I'm talking there about family, friends, co-workers, acquaintances, people in the church, people outside the church. Do I have unresolved conflict with another person? And if so, is it in my power to resolve that conflict? And if so, what steps can I take before partaking of communion to do so? And I have a bad attitude toward another person. Is there hatred or racism in my heart? 
Have I said anything unkind and hurtful to another person which I should confess? Have I lied to anyone to whom I can confess? Do I have a Christian friend who loves me enough to caution me about a dangerous relationship or activity they see in my life? Do I have a friend I am losing because I haven't taken the time to nourish my relationship with him or her? Well, that's just a few. But there should be a proper self-examination. That's why we are required in our denomination always to announce communion a week in advance. That's why we can't just one morning decide to have communion. It's to give us all time to prepare. Last of all, and I conclude, it's a time of, it should be of joyful anticipation. As I mentioned earlier, we are to do this. We are to observe this until he comes again. So we partake contemplating of the coming of Christ. Not to sound crass, but in a sense it's an appetizer that prepares us as we await the great marriage banquet in heaven. This is a foretaste of something far greater to come. It's to be a reminder that he will come. It is a foreshadowing of that time. He is the hope that purifies and he will reign forever and ever. Is your trust in him today? Have you recognized that you, like all of us, are a sinner, that we break God's laws in our, our thoughts and in our actions and in our words and in what we do and what we don't do. And because of that, God must punish our sin. We can't do enough good to outweigh the bad. God sent God the Son who became a man. He always obeyed God. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing my Father. He always kept God's law. He allowed himself to be arrested and crucified. And on that Roman cross, God put my sin on him and he punished him in my place. And so my sin, your sin that deserves death and punishment, Christ takes that. He died. He paid the full punishment for sin. Three days later, he rose from the grave and over a period of 40 days, he appeared to hundreds of people. At one time, more than 500 people at once. And the last command he gave his disciples was that they were to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding on our behalf. Is that where your trust is? Have you received the gift of eternal life? Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the work of Christ. Thank you for this simple sacrament that shows it forth. We pray your presence now in these moments together. In Jesus' name, amen.